Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30, it's always a dilemma to know what passage of Scripture you want to use. And I'm not even sure I want to use Isaiah chapter 30. How about Isaiah chapter 8? Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. Is it hot in here? Oh, thank you. Would someone else turn it down this time? (laughs) Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20 is an important word of Scripture to us all. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Uh, That's the word of the Lord. We are to seek for our understanding and for our answers, not to familiar spirits that are mentioned in verse 19, not unto wizards that peep. Isn't isn't God so commending in His language to people who peer into crystal balls? Wizards that peep. Sounds like peeping times, doesn't it? Wizards that peep and that mutter. Should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And that is the basis for what I hope is everything that I preach to you. Is it in the law and the testimony of God? And if it's not there, there isn't any light in it. God doesn't say there isn't much light in it. He says there is no light in it. If it's not contained in the law and the testimony of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to Thee tonight, ignorant men, foolish in our own minds, filled with tradition and practices given to us by our fathers. O Lord, we live in a nation that has turned its back upon Thee for the most part, but yet again we are assembled in this place to turn to the law and to the testimony and to see what You have to say regarding things important to us as to how we should live. We thank Thee for Thy Word in its bold claims that it makes for itself. We don't need to be bold ourselves for Your Word because it is itself bold. And we thank Thee for that boldness. We believe with the testimony of Scripture that if a particular subject is not found in Your Word, it is because there is no light in it. And if men speak... And what they say does not line up with what is in your word. It is because there is no light in them. We're thankful for bold statements like that. We, in and of ourselves, have no right to truth. We have no ability to truth. But apart from your revelation, and we're thankful for it, grant us all zeal and faith and a commitment to do whatever your word teaches, even in a generation that has turned its back upon thee. For we ask it in Christ's name and for his honor and glory. Amen. We have been studying the subject of scriptural weddings and what what makes up a scriptural wedding. What elements should be included in the way of principles to make a wedding line up with what the Word of God teaches about a wedding. I have told you in brief what makes up a traditional wedding. Most of you already knew. 
And some of the things that make up a traditional wedding are quite opposed to what the Word of God has to say about a wedding. I have shown you the evil influence of the Roman Catholic Church in setting many of our mindsets and in setting many of the traditions that we follow, even as Baptists, who have never claimed to be a part of that church. And yet she is the mother church. When they call their church the mother church, they're right. She is the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And many of those abominations have crept into so-called Baptist churches. And I've tried to show you that the sacrament of Rome called holy matrimony is but a corruption of scriptural of a scriptural wedding into another form of control over the members of her church. She is a mother that doesn't like to lose her children. We have looked at a number of elements of a scriptural wedding. The first element is that a wedding is not a religious ceremony. Our wedding is not a sacrament. A wedding is not an ordinance in the sense of a church ordinance. A wedding is a practical event that initiates a practical working relationship between a man and a woman. In the Bible, often celebrated simply with a supper, a feast, a party. It didn't have anything to do with a priest. There was no priestly function, no function of a prophet, no function for a minister in a wedding. What's he going to do? Where has he ever given authority to unite a man and a woman in holy matrimony or in marriage? A man doesn't have that authority. It's simply a commitment by two parties and their parents that they're going to live together and assume responsibilities toward one another in the public eye. And it's usually just a celebration that marks that event. But I want to warn against that religious emphasis that's made in so many churches, and it comes from Rome, that a wedding is a religious service, a religious event. Because once you start a marriage that way, thinking that marriage is some spiritual relationship, without going into all the details and implications of that, you create problems for yourselves. Because marriage is not a spiritual relationship. Marriage is a practical relationship. It is a physical relationship. It is a relationship of companionship. But it is not a spiritual relationship. You can have a spiritual relationship as well with any other sister in the congregation. You're heirs together of the grace of God with every sister in here tonight. Your wife is no exception, and she's not even a special heir of the grace of God with you. The text used in the Word of God to try to create a spiritual relationship out of marriage are so abused, like Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And the next verses go on to describe basically the same thought. And people will say, well, see... Christ's relationship with the church is a spiritual relationship, therefore the relationship... And listen, that is such a bunch of baloney. Go read the passage in its entirety. It talks about a man loving his own flesh. It talks about a man loving his wife for himself. It's not a spiritual relationship, and I, I want to correct that excess. Priests don't get the job done, church buildings don't get the job done, and religious vows don't get the job done. It is a practical day-in, day-out physical relationship between a man and a woman, much like we have with employers, much like we have in our own families, much like we have as citizens of a nation. It's a working relationship for the happiness and the efficiency of the ordering of the human race. 
Element number two that ought to be reflected in a wedding is the fact that the parental authority necessary for a wedding in God's eyes should be evident. And we looked at a number of examples. I gave you example after example, and I didn't give you all of them, of where parents arrange marriages, or where parents are so intricately involved in the marriage, it appears that the, br the bride and the groom hardly have anything to say about who they're marrying. They're just set with a spouse, and they're expected to live in a certain way with that spouse. And when you fear God, and you understand that is the way things should be, and you understand your obligations towards your spouse, it's not all that difficult. You don't have to fall in love to learn to love someone. You learn to love someone. Love is something that has to be taught and worked at every day of your lives to do it right. If you think it is something that comes naturally, it's not love, because love doesn't come naturally. And if we ever understood authority where daughters re respected their fathers as they should, they could marry a man sight unseen and learn to love him. You say, well, listen, and then I hear somebody squawk. Well, wouldn't it be a lot easier if they fell in love with them first? That's what, that's what I hear. I hear. I hear about half of you saying that. Wouldn't it be a lot easier if they fell in love with them first? Why do you, you want to play around with pie in the sky? Do you know what kind of guys girls fall in love with first? Scumbags. You give me any young girl, and exceptions don't count. Give me any girl 16 years of age, and you give, a hundred, give her 100 guys to pick from, and she will choose in the lowest quartile of those guys every time. Because it's the scumbags that will come crawling that she likes. And we'll get into more of that maybe this evening. All it takes is a little bit of wisdom to look around and watch what girls do. The guys girls pick when they are left on their own is a disgrace to their sex. And God knew that. So you know what he did? He ordained that fathers should help the poor things out in picking some man that's going to be a good husband for the next 50 years. See, two hours at a football game when you're wandering around in army fatigues behind the bleachers smoking cigarettes is not a good indication of what a man's going to do for 50 years of marriage. But I'm telling you, as long as he says she's cute and as long as he wears an earring in his right ear so that he's popular in school, she's in love with him especially if he has a car. And what will that do for her? Weddings should reflect parental authority. We ought to have a means, and I'm not going to tell you that means. That's going to be up to all of you when you have your children marry. Where are you going to be in that marriage, fathers of the grooms, and where are you going to be, fathers of the brides? Are you just going to walk down the aisle behind your little girl and say, her mother and I? Or are you going to take a fundamental role in that entire relationship, including the culmination of it in a wedding. I want to see some fathers be fathers in a generation where there are no fathers. Boy, my mother sent me an article this week written by a Christian psychologist. I've never met one, but <laughs> supposedly he's a Christian psychologist. I remember listening to him as a boy, Clyde Naramore out of California. But he, he was right for a change on one point. Doesn't know the answer, but he was right. And that is the number one problem in America today is the passivity of fathers.
fathers are passive leaders in their homes. There isn't such a thing as a passive leader, by the way. But the number one problem in homes in America today are the passive fathers, and he quoted a number of secular studies that have been done in recent years showing that the decline of civilizations begin with the father taking a passive role in his home. It was outstanding. But because of the other tripe included in it, I didn't bring it for your digestion. But that's true. I want to see some fathers take a leading role. And if you want to know the number one person in this congregation I'm preaching to in these messages, it's not the girls and it's not the boys, it's the dads to get a hold of their families and to set weddings and to coordinate, plan, govern, and rule their children's dating activities and their weddings. Element number three, a wedding should emphasize the groom over the bride because that is the way God has ordained the relationship. The woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman, and marriage should reflect that fact from its first day to its last day. And we ought to emphasize that fact. If God emphasizes it, I'm going to emphasize it. And if the world doesn't emphasize it, I'm going to doubly emphasize it. Because you need to hear it in a generation where the bride is exalted and the groom is not. That was element number three. Element number four that I hit last Sunday evening before we quit. And that is that a wedding should reflect in some way whether the bride is a virgin or not. And I know we've got some, uh, in 20th century America, we have some real good Christian types. They're so good at being Christians that they can't imagine a minister ever saying the word, let me steal up my courage here, virgin from the pulpit. Because they think it's not fit. Emily Post wouldn't have done it. Amy Vanderbilt wouldn't have done it. And that's why neither of them were ever called to preach, by the way, because they're women. Listen, every man knows how important virginity is, and if he doesn't think virginity is important, hmm, what kind of a man is he? God's a man, and God thinks it's most important. And from the beginning of his book to the end of his book, and you know what I mean as a man, he always writes from a male's perspective, because the man is the glory of God. God derives glory from the man. The man derives glory from the woman. And God emphasizes it, and we ought to emphasize it. And it is frightening to even have to preach about it in this generation. Listen, I sweat up here. You want to feel my palms right now? Yes, saying the word virgin in a pulpit makes my hands sweat. Not just my hands either, but that's my business. I sweat, nervous sweat, because we live in a generation where these things are ignored. Not only ignored, we have a generation that makes light of the things God thinks are important. Any woman in the last two generations that will be honest knows that a virgin, instead of being honored in our society, and I'm talking about our younger society, is ridiculed for that fact, either directly or indirectly. There, are, there is more innuendo and comments to shame girls that are virgins than to shame those that aren't. That is the way it is in 1989 in America. You are out of it if you're 18 years old and a virgin. And God says you are with it. You are a wonderful prized possession. And some guy is going to get a jewel.
if you're such a thing. And I wish to God we could get all of our young girls thinking about virginity in its most specific terms and what it means the day they get married. If I can do it to some of these girls, I know I'm going to do it to the two I have. Someday they'll love me for it. Someday they'll love me for it. And by God, we as men better keep them from anybody that would shame them for it in the meantime. I feel sorry for our young people today in the pressure they have to take that ridicules virginity instead of honoring it. You know, a sister called me and she made a very, very, very simple observation to me, but it just struck right into my heart. She said, after listening to you preach, I asked myself, when have I ever seen a woman or her father or her family ever honored for that woman being a virgin? Have you ever seen any public commendation or honor given to a virgin? You say, well, I once saw a girl wear a white dress. Listen, that hasn't meant anything for 50 years. And listen, you women that say it meant something when I wore it, I commend you before God. But it doesn't mean anything in our society anymore. Virginity is important in the Word of God. And if we are to go back to the Word of God, not in specifics. Listen, we don't have to have tokens of virginity just the way they did. Most of you wouldn't even be able to hear how they did it. I mean, you've got to not only obtain the tokens of virginity, you've got to guarantee that they are the true tokens of virginity. Just think about those two words, obtaining and guaranteeing, and you'll understand why we'll leave that subject unsaid for this meeting. It's a most interesting study. We are so prudish in the 20th century, all in the name of culture and enlightenment. Virginity was important. A woman had to depend on the tokens of her virginity the rest of her life because if her husband ever called her in question... Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 through 21, that she was a whore when he married her. She wasn't a virgin when he married her. If she couldn't produce the evidence and she didn't have to produce it, her father somehow had a vested interest in wanting to produce it. She died. Now, if her father was able to produce the tokens and she had been accused in the heat of some fight or an angry railing accusation against his wife, that man would be whipped and fined for bringing an evil name upon one of the most glorious things God's ever created, and that's a virgin. A non-virgin, a man who marries a woman that's not a virgin, number one, takes the risk that since she played the whore once, she'll play it again. Girls better understand that until they're married, they owe their virginity to their father and to God and to the man they're going to marry. But if a woman's played the whore once on her father, she could very well play it again on her husband. A man that marries a non-virgin creates a situation very susceptible to bitterness. Every man knows what I'm talking about. Every man that marries a woman that's not a virgin creates a situation that breeds insecurity. A man wants a woman that is all his and only his. That is a fact of nature that we don't even need to deal with at length. All the emphasis in the Bible about virginity proves that point, and God's pains 
to make sure his bride is a virgin proves the point. I mean, God takes us, all whores by nature, and makes us virgins. That, that is one of the most beautiful ways to picture what Christ did for his church, is to think of the church in the way he describes the church in their state of death in trespasses and sins. They are the lowest of harlots. And he takes them and makes them without spot, without blemish before him. I said everything else that I wanted to say last Sunday evening. In the word of God, you wore garments in public to indicate whether you were a virgin or not. You had to have those tokens at your wedding event. You know, you can be as prude as you want, but if you're too prude for God's word, you're too prude for God, and you are just plain too prude. The Bible is plain and open about these things, and if you're not plain and open about them with your daughters, you are cheating them of how God would have your children raised. I said a lot of things last Sunday evening. I didn't say everything I'd like to say. Some of you think that I said more than I ought to have said. I didn't say nearly as much as I could have. I said as much as I thought should be said last Sunday evening. But I want you to come to 2 Samuel 13 this evening, and I want to mention one more point before we leave the subject of virginity. Let me remind you while you're turning of some of the things I said last Sunday evening. We ought to teach our daughters the extreme importance of virginity specifically, exactly what it is. This idea of telling your daughter, I really want you to be pure. <laughs> what does that mean? Is that sort of like sugar? If it's 99.9% .9 pure or ivory soap, what does that mean? God never said that to young women. He specifically describes it because it is a specific thing and it involves a specific part of the anatomy that God specifically created for a specific means of identifying a very specific blessing. And you ought to teach your daughters that. That ought to be taught. Number two, the tremendous sacrifice of future value for present gratification ought to be taught. Our young girls ought to be taught that a moment's pleasure does not equal the loss of future value. And yet at that moment, you can't think of the future value. Our young girls ought to be taught that the response of Amnon, which we're going to read about in just a moment, is typical of many young men. It is a game among young men to think, talk, and try to act out the deflowering of virgins. It's a game with sinful young men. And anyone who's ever lived in a locker room very long knows what I'm talking about. It's a game. And we better talk, teach our young girls that once they lose that thing, they have been humbled. In the Word of God, that means they've just lost a whole lot of value, and who wants them? Just like Amnon hated her more than he loved her after he had taken her in 2 Samuel 13, which we're going to read. I said last Sunday that the purpose for public recognition of virginity is there's several reasons. Number one, we honor the bridegroom. A bridegroom who marries a virgin ought to be honored. He's getting a prize. When we recognize the virginity of a bride in public, we honor the virgin herself. I mean, if a girl's kept herself and her father's kept her for 20 years, does she deserve any public recognition? 
She deserves public recognition. That's why God thought it worthy of public recognition. A third reason. It establishes the virgin's integrity for the rest of her married life. If public identification is made that she's a virgin when she's married, that man can never raise an evil voice against her, which is the purpose of the tokens of virginity. Since we're not going back to the tokens, we should have something to try to restore that principle to the 20th century. Fourth, it would shame all those that have played the whore. Can you imagine a girl having to get married that wasn't a virgin in some public statement being made to the fact that she wasn't? Or something not, some public statement not being made that left the implication she wasn't? You say, that'd be a terrible public shame. It'd be a glorious honor to those who kept it. The fifth reason is it should provide motivation and warning to all others. I wish my daughter could attend five or ten weddings before she's 18 or 20 years of age and have about two of them shamed and about eight honored for their virginity. Do you think that'd do anything to your young girls to see some girls shamed in public for some stupid event? That is what God would have us to do. Whether you think that's too hard or not, just read the Bible in the references I've given you. There's reasons why we should do those things. Now, I want to read 2 Samuel 13. I've been as hard as I'm going to be on girls who lose their virginity. I want to read about a girl who didn't have her virginity that I love. And her name is Tamar. I'm hard because God's hard. But when you, listen, virtuous women have lost their virginity when they couldn't help it for a number of reasons. 2 Samuel 13, I'm going to read it all. Verse 1. It came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. And he said unto him, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down in thy bed, and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat, and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it and eat it at her hand. There's Jonadab's subtle counsel. Verse 6, So Amnon lay down and made himself sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, Who's the king, by the way, just to keep this at home? King David. I pray thee, this is Amnon speaking to his father, Let Tamar, my sister, come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat at her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house and dress him meat. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down. And she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and did bake the cakes. And she took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have out all men from me. And they went out every man from him. And Amnon said unto Tamar, Bring the meat into the chamber, that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, Nay, my brother, 
do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. And she said unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. Then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her. And she had a garment of divers colors upon her, for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of divers colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. I wish that afternoon I had met Tamar in the middle of a field crying with her hand on her head and her garment of divers colors married, her, her garment of divers colors rent on her body. And I would have said to her that day, I'll marry you today and pay a virgin's dowry for you and I'll cover your shame because this woman deserved it. And as hard as I may be, because the word of God is hard, this woman lost her virginity, but what a catch for any man that could have had Tamar as his wife. Now let me prove that. Three reasons. Reason number one, when this rapist who wanted to commit incest with her grabbed a hold of her, she was willing to what? To marry him. Now, how many women have you met that wanted to marry their rapist? Speak to, the, to our father. He will not withhold me from thee. But don't do this folly. Does she have some character? Don't do this folly. And she explains it two ways. One, how will I ever get away from my shame? I will live with this the rest of my life. Did she understand sacrificing the future on the altar of the present? And she said, you're going to end up being a fool in Israel for raping your sister. What a wise woman. But you know what? In spite of that, she said, I'll marry you, fool, if you'll ask my father. Reason number one. Reason number two. After he took her and raped her, he hated her with a hatred greater than with what he loved her. And I wish fathers would, ever, would sit down with their daughters and teach them the facts of life about what happens when a girl loses her virginity. She thinks she's really giving something special to a man, and instead... She gives the very thing that keeps that man attracted to her. We need to teach our daughters that. But look at Tamar. Verse 16, she said unto him, there is no cause. Why are you telling me to get out now? Why are you trying to send me away now? There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. Do you know what she's still willing to do? She's still willing to be married to Amnon. How's that? For a woman with some character. 
and she recognizes that the evil of sending her away was greater than the evil of raping her. That was a wise woman. A third reason. Verse 18, And she had a garment of divers colors upon her. And she said to Amnon, If you promise not to tell anyone, I'm not going to tear my garment, and I'll pretend I'm still a virgin. And she had a garment of divers colors upon her, for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Verse 18, And Tamar put ashes on her head, and rent her garment of divers colors that was on her, and laid her hand on her head, and went on crying. There was a woman that understood the importance of virginity and immediately, publicly announced that she had just lost it. Now, you want to talk about character? I wish I could have found her that day and married her right then and paid a virgin's dowry for her because that's what a man can do. He can cover the shame of a woman that loses it. There are a number of ways and reasons, and it's, it, it can be more than just incest, and it can be more than just rape, in which girls lose their virginity. Some girls lose their virginity because they don't have much in the way of fathers. And you can't blame the girl entirely for that. And there are other factors. But here's a woman, and I, I give this example for all of you to remember and keep a place in your heart that some girls may have lost their virginity for reasons that were out of their control. And as long as they show character like this woman shows, I'd take her in a heartbeat. She was the finest woman in Israel, virgin or not. Listen to the wisdom of that girl in the face of the greatest stress she'd ever been under. She's a jewel. I love her. I love Tamar. And everything I may say about a woman losing her virginity, there's one that had lost hers. I'd take in a minute. Boy, to have a woman with understanding like she had and a commitment like she had, willing to marry her rapist before and after the act when he hated her, pretty good, isn't it? That's a woman. That's a good woman. May the Lord bless all of you as we leave that point. I know that when I touch on something that intimate and that personal, some of you have experiences in your past that cause you to grieve. God is merciful and God forgives. And men that are godly are merciful and they forgive. And if you prove by your character today what Tamar was able to prove, there is no reason why in the world you can't have a reputation, even with those that know, that exceeds virgins that don't have such integrity we ought to sing a song I want to break the thought entirely we're going to leave virginity and go to the subject of dowries the concept of a dowry and I am not teaching that every time we have a marriage from this point forward we've got to have a dowry would you, please, would you people please have some mercy on me I'm not saying that. I'm not requiring that. I can't find it in the second chapter of Jude. Nor could I find it in the fifth chapter of Second Peter. Because there is no dowry required in the New Testament. And that creates some complications for dowries in the New Testament. But the principle of a dowry is exceeding wise. Exceeding wise. And I hope I can share some things about dowries with you from Scripture and from reason that will provoke you to want to think in a different way about dowries. What is the purpose of a dowry? 
A dowry, first of all, compensates the father of the bride. Remember, a dowry in Scripture is something the groom pays to the father of the bride. Today, in some pagan nations, a dowry is what? The family of the bride pays to the groom. You heard me correctly. They've got it backwards. But that's because they're pagan. God would have the groom and his family pay the bride's father something for that woman. And first of all, it's compensation. It's compensation for the fact that the man had a wasted childbirth. If you have a daughter, in a way, you lose a family member. That family member is going to become part of another family. It's compensation for that fact. Two, a lost worker for the family. Listen, if you lived on a farm and that girl's been picking up eggs and making butter and washing clothes and she was five years of age at 18, she is what we call indispensable. You can't live without her. You're going to have to hire a hand to take her place. You know why? You know what dowries would go for today if that's all a dowry was? About three cents. You know what the average 18-year-old's worth in the home today? About three cents. But when you lived in the way they did in the Bible and the way our grandparents lived, between 5 and 18, you'd worked a few hours on the family farm, hadn't you? You had done a few things for mom once in a while. You know, more than a load of laundry a month. More than clearing the table off and putting the dishes in the dishwasher after supper. You know, a 16-year-old thinks they're really working hard when they clear the table and put the dishes in the dishwasher. I commend you. You're worth a dollar twelve. Because that's all it would take to hire some monkey to come and do that job that takes about five minutes if you're serious about doing it. It was different back then. You lost a farmhand. And so you were compensated for it. Third, and I want to get on this one, for all you fathers of daughters, a dowry was compensation for wise child training. What determined whether your daughter was ever going to get a dowry or not? If you made her worth it. Remember, God established a minimum. A father that took the time and the care and made the investment in his daughter would have a bidding war for his daughters. And the sky would be the limit if he trained his daughters properly. A dowry provides a reward for the man who wisely trains his daughter. What is the first measure of a good woman? According to Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 30 to help you out. What is it? I can't remember. Proverbs 31 and verse 30. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. How is a woman ever taught to fear the Lord but by her father? You say, well, God has to give that in regeneration. Oh, wait a minute. That's totally out of our hands. We're not even talking about regeneration. We're talking about David when he said, come here, my children, and I shall teach you the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is something taught. And when you see a girl at 18 that doesn't have a whole lot of fear of the Lord, do you know where that came from? A lazy father. But I want to leave that out. We understand that. I have spent hours and hours and hours teaching on that point. There are other things a father can do to make his daughter a very attractive catch so that 
other men would be wanting to pay a good price for her. How many fathers take much care in the personality development of their daughters? Personality is so important in the attractiveness of a woman. Now, God said that beauty is wonderful. A woman that is fair to look upon is great. But there is a quality of graciousness, a meek and quiet spirit that is able to overcome some physical deficiencies. A woman that's got a good personality can take average looks and be stunning when you're in her presence. A woman that's got good looks and adds that, well, just don't even think about it. It's too much. An ugly dog that God deprived of beauty, and God does that. I mean, it's, he, just, he deprived the stork of any wisdom. He deprived some wi- women of beauty. With a proper personality, they can overcome that. And you know who's responsible for developing that personality? It's not their third grade teacher. It's their father. And I want to get on men right now. A dowry would compensate you for that. And you'd be shamed if you didn't put any time and attention into your daughter if we lived under the Old Testament where men paid dowries. They'd say, they'd look at your daughter and they'd say, you mean that fish? That cold and clammy personality that's just about worthless to be around? I've never heard one thing out of her mouth worth hearing. I've never seen her get excited about anything. She's got the spirit of an earthworm. We need to create spirit and personality in our daughters. You say, well, God didn't give my daughter much of a personality. You lying cheat. Why don't you want to work at it? Listen, I see men with daughters running around 20 pounds overweight. And I, and I wonder to myself, what? Where, where are they? Where are their heads? In the sand or in the clouds? You men that have daughters ought to be doing everything you can to have your daughters as physically attractive as they are able. What's interesting about that is a daughter is a reflection until she's married on a man called her father. And I don't know why men don't take more pride in their reputation before the world and wanting their daughters to represent them well. I don't understand. Is your daughter overweight? Do something about it. Well, she doesn't like to lose weight. Listen, if you've got to drive around the subdivision with her in front of your car, (laughs) get the weight off. That is your job. What else is going to... Listen, as long as they've got Doritos and classic Coke, you know, they're going to weigh too much. They need fathers in the 20th century. You know, dads today just ship them off to school with Doritos and classic Coke. Give them a few bucks for spending money and forget about them. Where are fathers that will take pride in their daughters and make them all that they can be? And I want to say something right here. There isn't a woman alive that can do the job like a man can that will take the time to do it. Because a woman does not know what is attractive. I know I am the most arrogant preacher you've ever heard in your life. And women, if you can't stomach it, it's because you're ignorant. A woman does not know what makes a woman attractive to men like a man. Like a man. There is no better judge for a woman's attractiveness than a man. Listen, if you have a daughter that dresses for other women, she's going to dress retarded. You want to see women that dress for women? 
They model in New York City. And do you know what those women are? They're the fags that line the stage. They are men that should be eunuchs singing in some choir for Solomon. They don't know the first thing about being a man. They don't have enough testosterone in their body to make an earthworm male. They are the ones that pick the fashion styles for our young girls. They are dressing for women, and worse than that, they're dressing for dogs. You give me a red-blooded American man and take him to the store with a woman and he'll dress her right. And I'm not talking about dressing your daughter seductively for public performances. I'm talking about dressing her attractively. Fathers are responsible. Listen, if we had men paying money for your daughter in her professional preparation, what have you done to make your daughter able, if she marries a man, to contribute to that marriage financially? A wise man is going to be looking at that when he marries a woman. If we're not going to have kids for five years, or if we have all our kids in the first 15 years, I always think a big family, what can this woman contribute later in life? Did her father prepare her professionally? Or if you take away diaper changing and formula mixing, she's a zero. And a lot of Christian girls end up like that. She ought to be prepared to do something and to contribute to a marriage. Have you thought about that, fathers, so that your daughter's a valuable catch? Have you taught your daughter obedience so that she willingly, gladly, cheerfully, always, lovingly grovels before you and wants to obey you? And you know what I mean by grovel. I mean willingly wants to obey you and cheerfully because if she doesn't, any wise man's going to see that and he's going to know it's going to be ten times worse when I marry her. Because women have this idea that a husband's a peer and they don't think that of their father. If you see any disrespect toward a father, it'll be ten times worse when you marry her. That's Crosby's rule of thumb about marriage. Anything you see before marriage is ten times worse the next day. It jumps out like you wouldn't believe. How about the dress? You know, our daughters ought to be dressed as well as we're able. It doesn't take money to dress a, a girl well. It doesn't take money to dress a girl well. It just takes some intelligence and some effort. And you can dress your daughter well. And that is a responsibility of fathers to make all that they can out of their daughters. What about etiquette? Do you spend any time with your daughter teaching her how to act socially, how to speak to men without turning her head sideways, turning fi the fifth shade of red, and stuttering like she's got a hair lip. You know what kind of a woman that is? A zero. You're going to marry a zero. You want a woman that is able to communicate, that can stand up and think and just doesn't clam up. You say, well, my daughter just clams up. She clams up because you've never given her any training. All those things can be learned with training. What kind of a daughter are you preparing? You know, a dowry was an incredible way of measuring what a man did. Because if a man didn't do his job, he got a dollar twelve. For the man that did his job, I mean, men were bidding. Do I hear ten? Ten thousand. Do I hear eleven? Eleven thousand. Then some bold guy in the back says, fifteen thousand. Do I hear twenty? Twenty thousand. And some father of the bride that's invested twenty years of his life He's taken time that's boring time. Yes, sitting down with your eight-year-old daughter is boring. Right. It's boring. But God requires it of you. 
And that man stands there with his head swelling so big it takes a crowbar to get him out of the room because his daughter is a catch, because he invested some time in her and he gets compensated for it. Today, what does he get? He gets the great role of saying, her mother and I, nothing. And then he pays for it. I, I, can you, I, thank you for reminding me. He doesn't get a dowry. He has to pay to get rid of her. After all that investment, that is how much, when the Lord said to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Do you believe it after thinking about the transfer of cash at a wedding today? The poor man loses a daughter and he has to pay for it. I feel like a little boy right now, about four years old, little four-year-old boy. That's all I am up here. I've seen daughters in our generation, and I am ashamed to say I've seen it in this congregation, where the daughters looked like refugees from Afghanistan that had somehow stumbled into the refuse heap of an army base. And they found in that refuse pile some olive drab tent that they took home and wrapped three times around their legs and called it a skirt. Then they got a care package from their Aunt Matilda, who lives in East Germany and takes steroids. Aunt Matilda is six foot, six inches tall. And they wear Aunt Matilda's sweater. The bottom comes to the knees. The cuffs are six inches past their fingertips. It's good for football games to stand around like this, like you've got two withered hands and you're waiting for healing. On their feet, they've been to Denver to find some mountain climbing boots because the only people that would wear them are those that climb mountains. Laced up boots fit for a mountain man. You keep moving your head up. They've got so much colored makeup around their eyes, they either look like a fighter that lost or a jack-o'-lantern with a candle burned low. Then you look at their beautiful face and you know what they're trying to emulate? Old Molly, the Holstein cow their grandmother owned. They're, they're slopping away on gum so that every time they speak to you, there's little bits of saliva flying all over and everything has a sloshing sound to it. I want to say something right here. There are people in this audience that will say, you know, you're preaching a matter of taste. I did not say one thing had to do with my personal taste. There is nothing to do with taste. For some reason, when I'm around a campfire, I don't go sit in the middle of the campfire. Do you know why? Nature teaches me not to sit in the middle of a campfire. Nature also teaches people who take respect in themselves to dress a certain way. The only people that dress like that are the morons of our generation between the ages of 3 and 17. And do you know the biggest shame of all? And here's my bottom line. Every daughter that dresses that way has a father with that mentality. Well, it's a fad. Let the children be children. Wait a minute. Let the children sit in the fire and do something stupid. You are setting a pattern for their lives and you are showing they have whipped you as your children. I went to Wade Hampton's homecoming on Friday evening and sat next to the student section. That's the moron section. Listen, I saw more acid-washed jeans and Aunt Matilda sweaters than you've seen in a week.
They're the ugliest creatures that you've ever laid eyes on. Do you know why I'm a little four-year-old boy right now? Because I'm the only one that has the courage to say, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. Because those stupid little girls walk out of their houses thinking they're cool. They're cool. And see, no one has the courage to tell them they look they look like they're fit for an Afghanistan refugee camp. Why doesn't anybody want to tell them? Why doesn't anybody, where, where are the fathers that want to take these daughters and make them into fine young women that know how to dress with some class and be attractive? Where are they? Where are they? Those poor girls, the ones that have an IQ above 80, will wake up one day and they're going to look back at pictures of when they were 13 years old and say, my God, where was my father? Where was anybody to teach me how to dress? You know why I say that? Because I woke up one day. Listen, I used to wear a Fidel Castro hat everywhere I went. Why? Because he was my hero. Without thinking of it, he was my hero in rebellion. And I wore a Fidel Castro hat everywhere I went. Why didn't somebody rip that thing off my head and if I stuck it up there one more time, rip my head off with it. Why aren't there any more men who want to say they don't have any clothes on? They don't have any clothes on. The emperor's nude in the street. We send at our girls looking like tramps. The fourth reason of compensation for a dowry is a father gets rewarded for preserving her virginity. Who's responsible for preserving the virginity of our daughters but our fathers? When he gets paid a dowry, He's well rewarded on four counts. He loses a child to his family name. He loses a worker. He gets rewarded for his child training. He gets rewarded for preserving her virginity. There is so much wisdom in God's word. And I esteem it and love it. What's the other purpose for a dowry? And this is the one I want you to think about the most. The other purpose for a dowry is how does a father qualify a bride? What is the best way for a father thinking about the daughter he loves so much and thinks about the 50 years she's going to spend with some other man and he wants to make sure he gets a man that's going to take care of her? What's the best way to do it? Is it to let them play putt-putt and see a movie twice a week for six months before they get engaged then for another six months before they get married? Is that how it's done? Or does God give us a very simple way to do it? And the Bible, that very simple way was, can he pay cash? Can he pay cash? You know, today, Tommy Motorcycle comes to the door. The first thing the father of the bride notices is he's got on a pair of fancy boots. And he says, Tommy, those boots must have set you back a couple of weeks. Oh, no, sir. No, he uses sir, of course. <laughs> he's got to get the girl that's sitting over there on the sofa. Oh, no, sir. I use my dad's credit card. <laughs> well, a wise father's going to chalk one up. He's got a retard in front of him. He looks out in the driveway and he's got some motorcycle or car sitting out there and he says, wow, I'll bet you paid a pretty penny for that. How many years did you have to save for that? And Tommy, Tommy says, huh? You know, you know how they talk today. They're monkeys half the time. I didn't save any for it. They gave it to me with $100 down. And I've only got to pay $118 for the next five years. You know, they're doing that now, 60 year. I remember, do you know how young I am? When I was in the bank, the longest car loan you could get was 36 months. How many of you remember that? Do you know how young I am? 
36 months. Now they're giving you a mortgage for it. And they're hoping it'll hold up. That's because everybody's in debt. So you've got Tommy Motorcycle there. Now he's cool. He's in it with the in crowd at school. He wears a leather jacket and he's got fancy boots. And he smokes cigarettes in the parking lot. He's a man among men. And little Susie there, or Rachel, thinks Tommy is just it. Because when she walks through school, she is Tommy's girl. Wow. What a privilege in a local high school. What's the best way to handle Tommy? Tommy, if you want to marry a shotgun, I heard someone say. <laughs> Tommy, if you're interested in my daughter, it'll take 25,000 cash. Now, can, can you imagine what that would do to our society? What would happen to the Tommies? They'd all have to join the military to find friends because they wouldn't have any brides. Can you imagine the wisdom of God's Word? You had to pay to get your bride. The average young man today is in debt when he goes looking for his bride. He's in debt. He owes on his car. He owns on his clothes. You know, he had to buy some fancy clothes to impress the poor little mind. You don't impress the mind of a father that easily, do you? amazing you know you can buy a few nice clothes like a denim jacket jeans with some designer label on the rear pocket and have a pink comb sticking out of your back pocket and you'll impress a girl but you don't walk into a man's house and impress a father that way it's amazing god you think god knew what he was talking about when he set up the way things ought to be done the average young man today's in debt he can't even reach break even how in the world is he going to provide for a girl any guy that's in debt for a car is stupid. Any 20-year-old in debt for a car is stupid. There's no way you should ever let him marry your daughter. Unless you're praying for a miracle. And listen, God only gives miracles where he thinks they're fit. You don't presume on that. You don't tempt the Lord with that. Financial measurement is the best, single, simplest measurement of a man. You say, I don't like financial measurement because I haven't done very well. It is the coldest, hardest, cleanest, simplest, always tells the truth measurement of a man's character. Look at some verses with me. Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10. How, when you look at this 17-year-old child, how do you look at him and figure out whether for 50 years he's going to be able to have the character to take care of your daughter or not? How do you tell? Cash. One word. Cash. Proverbs 10 and verse 4. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. You say, well, I shake their hands, and if they've got a firm grip, they're a man. If they've got a weak grip, they're a fish. Well, God has a better measure. A hand that, see... Tommy might already know that because Susie said, when you come home, Dad's going to expect a firm handshake, so can you muster one up tonight? You know, don't smoke any marijuana for, the next, for, the, for two weeks so that you can get enough courage up to squeeze his hand. So he comes in and he squeezes your hand firmly. Well, you've blown it. But if you say cash, Tommy's out the door again. Because 
a poor boy has a slack hand, and a boy that's got money in the bank has a firm hand. He's got a diligent hand. And that's what you want to find for your daughter. Look at chapter 12, Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. Do you want your, your daughter, when she's 40 years of age, to be married to a man that's a servant to the local savings institution? Or do you want your daughter married to a man that's going to be in a position of authority and leadership? Do you know how you tell? Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule. You measure his diligence. And how do you measure diligence? It's a four-letter word. Cash. Oh, isn't that a hard It's a four-letter word. A lot of men hate it because it means they had to do another four-letter word, W-O-R-K. And Tommy, if there's one thing he hates, it's W-O-R-K. He loves P-L-A-Y. Oh, to play. And he loves party, but he doesn't love work. But you don't want your daughter marrying Tommy. You want your daughter marrying somebody that's going to work. And you measure it with cash. Proverbs 21. I don't think I'd have six kids if my father-in-law had ever said cash. Now, I had some cash, but I mean, he'd have to be re really thinking lowly of his daughter to have accepted the cash I had. I'd probably have about one child because I wouldn't have got married till I was 30. Pitiful as a teenager is what I'm saying, and there's no way I deserved a wife. I can tell you all day about how I thought I was ready. And things worked out, but do you know how they work out? By the grace of God, they work out. By the grace of God, they work out. Because I wasn't ready. Proverbs 21, 17, He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Tommy loves pleasure. So Tommy doesn't have cash. You want a man with cash because a man with cash has his priorities in the right place. Proverbs 21 and verse 20. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. How do you tell if Tommy's wise or foolish? Quickly. It's a four letter word. Cash. Cash. If he doesn't have cash, he's a fool. Because a fool spends everything he earns. Most of us have worked day in, day out with fools. Those of you who aren't fools yourselves financially. They live from paycheck to paycheck. It's spent before they even get it. It's all taken. Haven't you worked with those kind of people? They spend it all up. But there's treasure in the dwelling of the wise because the wise will save their money. A wise young man will have cash. You say, but he has to pay for himself to go to college. He'll still have cash because there's ways to go to school and still save cash. No, if you're a lemming, brethren, if you're a lemming or you're a sheep and you do it the way everyone else does it, you'll be 25 years of age in debt. And you don't deserve a wife because your priorities aren't in the right place. You went off to school not even knowing what you were going to do 98 times out of 100, and you got a degree in a field you don't know whether you're apt for or not. There's ways you can have a job, go to school at the same time, and still save cash. And you'll probably get your degree in a field that you'll use the rest of your life. Proverbs 22 and verse 29. Here's what I want for my daughter. I want my 
son-in-law to stand before kings and not to stand before mean men. Proverbs 22:29. Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. I want my daughter married to the most successful man I can find. And the way you find that is you measure cash. Because it's diligence that gets a man before kings and not before mean men. And mean men aren't angry men. Mean men are the low class. Or, like I like to say, the average man. You want your daughter married to someone better than the average man. And you measure it by diligence in business. 24. Proverbs 24 and verse 30. I went by the field of the slothful, and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw, and considered it well. I looked upon it, and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. Tommy walks in the door. You say, Tommy, how old are you? I'm 20, sir. What profession have you chosen for your life? I don't know, sir. What have you been doing for two years since you graduated? I didn't graduate, sir. Well, what do you mean you didn't graduate? I dropped out when I was 16 because I got a good job. Where's your good job? I work at the pantry. Well, Tommy, how long have you worked at the pantry? Four years, sir. Well, Tommy, what do you have to show for yourself? Nothing, sir. I'd love to. I can't wait for the day I get to do that. I have been over this so many times. I cannot wait to have Tommy sitting at my table. You walk out and listen. You look. I saw and I considered, I looked and I received instruction. Just ask a few questions. You walk out in the driveway and the guy's driving a $9,000 Camaro. You say, Tommy, you earn money at the pantry to buy a car like that? No, my father gave it to me when I dropped out of school when I was 16. He wanted to get me started in my life. You think to yourself, what a dad, but you don't say that to Tommy because you don't want to run down his ancestors yet. You look at the car and you, you say, flip the hood, Tommy. And Tommy gets excited thinking you're going to look at his chrome valve covers. And instead you pull the dipstick and you, you run the sludge off it because he hasn't changed the oil in 15,000 miles. You th- come. I'm not playing games. How do you look in the 20th century and find out if a guy takes care of things? Pull the dipstick, run your fingers down, and if you feel any grit... Tommy ain't good enough for your daughter. You say, pop the trunk, Tommy. He thinks you're going to look at his new mag wheels. You pop it. There's 13 beer cans, 12 pop cans, a diaper, and the garbage that should have been taken out. And it stinks because it's been there for three months. Do you know what you just learned about Tommy? Have a nice life if you're in a charitable mood. How do you look at young men today? Cash. It was a dowry in the Old Testament. Now I hear someone saying, that is the Old Testament. You're taking verses out of Proverbs. You're trying to create a financial measurement of men, and that isn't fair. It's the only fair way to measure a man. Now you want to see it in the New Testament? Look at Luke 16. Look at Luke 16. 
Do you know the first thing I look for in any man that I would ever think of being fit for the ministry? The first thing? The first thing. And it isn't whether he can quote scripture. Listen, anybody can sit down and memorize scripture. You don't need to memorize it. If you read enough, you'll memorize the whole book. It's how they work. Luke 16. And if, do you know how the average man's ordained today? It's whether he was dumb enough to sit and listen to a seminary professor pour that particular institution's theology and creed into one ear and that he could quote it back on tests and he's ordained. Do you know how Jesus Christ wanted to measure men? Cash. You say, show this to me. I got to see this. Luke 16, verse 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? Those three verses contain so much wisdom. If you haven't been faithful in the little things of life like earning money, you'll never be faithful in the big things like loving my daughter for 50 years. If you haven't been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, which is a base thing, money, you'll never be faithful in the true riches of a God-given woman. If you haven't been faithful in the things that are another man's, your employer's things, if you don't want to get there early, and if you don't want to stay late, and if you don't want to work through your lunch break, and if you don't want to better yourself for that employer, and if you don't want to serve that master, you'll never take care of something that's your own. Is there wisdom in those three verses? Cash. Cash. Romans 12, 11 tells us not to be slothful in business. It is an ordinance of the New Testament that men are to work hard in their professions. Do you know what a dowry proves? A dowry is cash. Do you know what cash proves? If a young man has cash, it proves four things quickly. The diligence to earn it. Ever heard this before, man? The diligence to earn it the temperance or self-discipline to save it, the patience to accumulate it, and the wisdom to invest it. Do you mean to tell me that by seeing cash, you can make a judgment about a man that he's got diligence, temperance, patience, and wisdom? Yes, you can. Why is God so wise? It's the concept of a dowry that I'm teaching, not the actual dowry. How do you measure the young men that are going to come and ask or seek to marry your daughters. How much was a dowry in the Bible? The amount of a dowry depended on the bride's father. Listen, if he didn't want to lose his daughter, he could double the price, triple the price, he could ask whatever he wanted. But remember, if you raise it too high, you may have a 70-year-old daughter on your hands. The minimum for a virgin in Israel was 50 shekels of silver. Exodus 22 tells us that. A virgin got 50 shekels of silver. That was the floor. Now, if she was good-looking, had a good personality, her father had taught her how to dress, and she knew etiquette, she probably got a whole lot more because there were 50 guys lined up at the picket fence out front in an auction. But the minimum was 50 shekels of silver. 50 shekels of silver. This doesn't work as fast. 
50 shekels of silver in the Word of God were sufficient to buy a threshing floor, a field, and a yoke of oxen. Do you know the only other occurrence of 50 shekels of silver in the Bible is when David bought those things from a man where the Ark of the Covenant was resting. Do you know what those things are called? The means of production. What did Jacob agree to for a dowry? He didn't agree to it. He offered it. He said, I'll serve thee seven years. What's the average earnings of a 20-year-old? 5,000, I hear one brother say, for Tommy at the pantry. Let's say 15,000 times seven years. Do you know what that amount is? It's 105 grand. Jacob was willing to do that. You say, well, Jacob was a rich man. That's why he said that. Do you know how much Jacob had when he said that? He had a staff in his hand. <laughs> he had a staff. But he agreed to work for seven years to earn his bride, Rachel. And we don't have it as easy as King Saul around here. All you have to do is go out and circumcise a hundred Philistines. Some of you clerics would think that'd be a lot of fun. David did. That's why he brought back 200. There are complicating factors today that make an actual dowry difficult. And I'm going to be honest. It's 1989. We don't have a minimum in Scripture. If you don't have a minimum, you don't know where to start. Not only that, we don't have a going rate. The market has to determine the going rate. So what do you ask for a dowry? Well, I'm talking principle, not a specific dowry. Let me give you an idea of something just to think about. And here's the reason I give you this. The reason. The Bible says we ought to reason in the Scriptures and out of the Scriptures. The Bible teaches us that a dowry was the way God ordained for men, for fathers, to qualify the husbands for their daughters. We have seen in the Word of God, and you know I could show you many more passages I haven't shown you, that the best way to measure a man's character is to measure it financially. It's the simplest, most direct approach. We don't have dowries required in the New Testament. We don't have dowries in America. So what can a man do today? Well, first of all, you're going to have a daughter that's... You're going to have to have a daughter that's under demand or, or guys are just going to laugh at your claim for a dowry. You're going to have to train a daughter that's worth something. Then when you say the word dowry, it doesn't matter. Do you remember what Shechem said to Jacob and the 12 brothers when he wanted Dinah? He said, ask whatever you will, I'll pay it. Why? Dinah must have been quite a catch and the poor sucker had fallen for her. Whatever you ask, I'll pay. You train your daughter right and you say dowry, nobody's going to balk at it. How about, this is just hypothetical, you have a 20-year-old guy wanting to marry your 18-year-old daughter. You tell the 20-year-old man that he needs 25000 in cash to marry her. He wants your daughter. He has saved and worked hard all his teenage years. 25000 isn't hard to have at the age of 20. Let me tell you something. Rachel Crosby right now is on a program without any investment returns to have 45000 when she's 20. It doesn't take much a year. She's starting at 12. That's eight years. Do you know what it takes? It doesn't take that much a year to end up with 45000 She and I know exactly what she needs to do between now and then to have 45000 Some guy can pay a dowry for her and still be okay. I don't like that. Maybe that'll go into my account. You have a 20-year-old wanting to marry your 18-year-old daughter. You say 25000 cash, you can marry her. 
when you're 30 years of age, if you have taken care of my daughter well, I will have invested that 25000 for 10 years, and I'll give the whole thing back to you with earnings. And I hear the young man saying, yeah, but could you write down exactly what you want me to do so that I can get the money back when I'm 30? Just my judgment. Just my judgment. Do you know what kind of a screw you have in his back? Do you know how much wisdom there is in that? What 20-year-old knows how to take care of money, even if he did save some? He still is only 20 years old. At 30, you have a whole better perspective of money. Do you know what you've done by taking 25000 out of his life? In economics, it's called the propensity to consume. The more money you have, the more you want to spend. You take 25000 of his life, you're going to tighten down their first 10 years of marriage. You say, well, that doesn't sound very nice. It's the best thing that could happen to them. Give it back to them when he knows how to spend it. Now, that isn't the word of God. That isn't required of you. Listen, you men are to exercise wisdom in applying the principles of the Word of God. The law is good if a man know how to use it lawfully. There's a lot of good wisdom there. Think about how you want to qualify those that are going to be seeking your daughters. A wedding should include some identification of the groom's qualifying and the bride's qualifying. You know, there ought to be a history of the groom's character given. Why don't we, in a wedding... Do you know most of the guests at a wedding don't know anything about one of the parties or both of the parties? Think about the weddings you've been to. You know nothing about one of the parties, usually, or both of the parties. Wouldn't it be great to have a brief review made of their life, their lives, especially the grooms, and how he qualifies to be a good groom? Every young man sitting there and every young girl sitting there would be impressed at the importance of what's taking place. And the question and answer session could be addressed by the father of the spouse. I would like to see the bride's father addressing the groom about his life. Is that scriptural? Abraham's servant, when he arrived at, arrived at Bethuel's house where Laban was there, the first thing he did was qualify Isaac for Rebekah by saying, God has blessed my master Abraham's house abundantly. And all that he has is Isaac's. Two verses. And the servant has set up Isaac as being qualified financially for Rebekah. You know, Boaz had a good basis for marrying Ruth. Why in weddings isn't there some statement made as to why one party is good for the other party? Why? Look at the book of Ruth. Did, Ruth, did Boaz have a good reason for marrying Ruth? She was a forward woman, at least on one night. Did Boaz have a good reason for marrying her? You don't remember. Ruth 3 and verse 11. Now, Ruth has come in during the middle of the night and laid at his feet. He wakes up frightened to find a woman laying at his feet in the middle of a field. He knows what she wants, rather obvious. And he says to her in verse 11, Now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. Now, there is a woman going after a man. She's requiring him to marry her. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Why in weddings don't we have the groom saying something complimentary of his bride? 
Why don't we have the groom's father saying something complimentary of the bride? There's no recognition of any honor. It ought to be done. It ought to be done. A wedding should include some sort of a public commitment or covenant. Now, there are covenant passages in the Bible, and none of the covenant passages, if you take the best one and try your best, you cannot construe it to teach vows to each other. Nowhere can you find vows between a bride and a groom in the Bible. Nowhere. Can't find it. The greatest covenant in the Word of God that binds a man to to serve and love his wife well and a woman to serve and love her husband well is the covenant that we all have with God. And I want to emphasize that covenant. Exodus chapter 24. See, that covenant ought to be the basis for everything we do. Exodus 24. You know, there are verses like Job 31.1. Job said, I've made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? That isn't a covenant to a woman. That's a covenant with himself. I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? You can't take that text to teach some marriage vow where they say, I do, I do. You can't do that. Here's a covenant. And this is the covenant that makes marriages work. Exodus 24 and verse 7, And he took the book of the covenant, that's the book of the law of God, and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. And do you know what some of those words were? How a man's to treat his wife. This is the covenant that makes a man a good husband. This is the covenant that makes a woman a good wife. Does she want to do all that God has commanded? That is the covenant. And if you haven't determined that long before you get to the wedding ceremony, a few trite little words expressed to each other are no basis for a marriage. This is the basis for a marriage. This covenant. But there needs to be a public acknowledgement that these two are not living in fornication. They're married. Now, I've talked to the state of South Carolina in the last several weeks. This state still honors common law marriages. If we had a young man and a young woman tonight, maybe under coercion from a few of us, go home together and we leave them our house for the evening, they are considered married even in the eyes of the state of South Carolina. And they certainly would be in the eyes of God if they walked out of this place and that was understood. But you ought to hear the way the state of South Carolina states it. There needs to be a verbal acknowledgement that they are considering each other as husband and wife. That's all. Which is what a wedding is. That's what a marriage is. A public acknowledgement. She's my wife. He's my husband. You can't just live together and call it a common law marriage. Can't do that. It will not stand even in this state. There has to be that public acknowledgement. And we ought to honor that not only for the state of South Carolina, but because it's always honored in Scripture, there was that initiatory event that started a marriage, and it's called the wedding. Vows made to each other may sound pretty and nice, and women just fall in love with them, but they don't carry much weight. The first time the old man comes home, and he's really ticked off after a bad day at work, he is not going to look at that woman that he wants to take out a little bit of his frustration on and remember what he promised in some little ceremony. 
When you're upset at someone, you don't remember the nice things you've said to them before. But if you have looked the father of that woman in the eye and promised him a certain level of behavior, and if he's holding $25,000 in the bank that you're not going to get back, you will think twice about it. Men will respect other men far more than they'll respect some words uttered to the woman herself. Men understand dealings with other men. And a father that has properly given away his daughter with all the solemnity that should be involved and all the qualifying that should be involved, and that father looking at that young husband in the eye and that young husband trembling in his britches and thinking about having his loins loosed, like Belshazzar, he will think about that man when he tries to slap his wife across the room. There is no way a woman can ever get a man to say enough to counteract the anger of a bad day if he wants to abuse her verbally, psychologically, sexually, or physically. The best thing we can do is to have fathers that have the fear of God in the hearts of young husbands. You know, weddings ought to include some opportunity for pronouncing a blessing upon the marriage. We never hear the men stand up and and bless the couple, do we? In the Word of God, Bethuel and Laban blessed Rebekah before she left. They said, God, make thee the mother of thousands and thousands and millions. God bless you with a big house, lots of children, as the sandwiches by the seashore. Isaac blessed Jacob with great blessings. When Isaac sent Jacob back to the same country to get his wife Rachel, he blessed him. The God of heaven bless you and prosper you. Where are the blessings? Where are the fathers? The fathers should stand and give a blessing at weddings upon the couple and call God's blessing down upon them. You don't need a minister to do that. Where are the fathers? Look at Ruth. You're the, you're, no, you're not. Look at Ruth. Ruth 4, look anyway. I, know, I thought you were there. Ruth chapter 4. A wedding ought to include a blessing. You say, well, we had a toast at our reception. You're close. That's good. That's good. There ought to be several toasts. You say, well, people could get happy that way. Well, then there ought to be several toasts. That's what a wedding is for. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 11. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses to this wedding. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah. What does that mean? Fruitful. Which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephratah. And be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah. Of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. What a blessing. Do valiantly, prosper, be a mighty man. Why isn't the groom sent into his life with a real charge like that? This is the word of God. Wouldn't that be exciting to have a blessing like that pronounced upon you? May this woman be the mother of millions. I know the poor woman today would just turn white. But if she was a godly woman, she'd appreciate the blessing. Look at Deuteronomy 24.5. Hold with me for just five more minutes and we'll finish. Deuteronomy 24.5. I'll have to cry extra in my sleep tonight if we don't finish this study of weddings. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5. When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business. 
but he shall be free at home one year and shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. The first year of marriage ought to be planned by the fathers to keep the son as free as possible from any care away from home. This text does not mean he's at home sipping mint juleps out on the porch every day for a year. It means he is not called away to war. It means he is not charged with business away from home. It means he is free from anything that would take him away from home. He's free at home to cheer up his wife. What young woman, especially in the way the Bible talks about marriage, would want to marry a man and then have him disappear? God made provision for that. The Word of God has so much wisdom in it. Deuteronomy 24, 5 is not a one-year honeymoon. It means that when you get married, you better take care not to be doing too much. You know, at the age of 20, you may be working a job, you may be working a part-time job, and you may be going to school. Do you know what?